Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have returning to the podcast for the second time from Nashville. Nashville, is that right? Dr. Amy Jill Levine. AJ, how are you, friend? It's delightful to see you again. So I'm, I'm stuck at home teaching courses on Zoom. How are you? Mm, yeah, that whole Zoom teaching. Yeah. Even at Duke, you know, they they can't get around the COVID. They still have to social distance, even with the smartest people in the world on campus at Duke. Well, except for the ones at Vanderbilt. <laughs> oh, that's right. You're at Vanderbilt. I completely messed this up. Oh my goodness. We, why are we? Ta- we were talking about Duke just before on the beforehand. I'm really embarrassed now. Let's that's pretend okay. like that didn't I, happen. I have okay. Me from Duke. I'm I'm all right Thank with you. Duke. They, Thank they you. They all by me, and I by them. Okay, all right. So do who I mean if you are you familiar with the movie Space Jam? No. Michael Jordan has to play basketball against aliens and they're making a remake where it's LeBron James has to play a game of basketball against aliens. And it's cartoon Disney and all that. Um here's a question for you. If there was a competition between one faculty against aliens to save the species of humanity and Earth, are you going to pick Vanderbilt or Duke? I'd actually pick MIT, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great response. That is a great response. What, like, that is a very Jesus move right there. You just kind of ducked right out of it. And yeah, well done. That's I've been impressive. studying long enough. It kind of takes after a while. <laughs> okay, you, so your, uh, your PhD, it's, is it New Testament? It is. From Duke. Where did you do uh, your academic work before PhD work? I did my Bachelor of Arts in Religion and English at Smith College, which is a women's college, the women's college in Northampton, Massachusetts. And then my MA and my PhD at Duke and some postdoctoral work at Brown. Okay. Are, are you from the New England area? Do I not sound it? Uh, you know, I was not going to, you know, I was not going to guess, but yeah, yeah, obviously yeah. so. I'm from Massachusetts. I'm from southeastern Massachusetts, so I don't have a Boston accent. I put R's in where they do not belong rather than drop them off where they do. Uh, I'm from a small town in between the cities of New Bedford and Fall River, Mm -hmm. where I home would be New Bedford and Fall River. See, that's what I, because whenever I hear, uh, you know, Matt Damon talk about that, or I watch The Town or Goodwill Hunting, it sounds a lot more like that than the way you describe them. Yeah, that's, that's about it. Yeah, Deutschester, what is that town called? Dorchester. See, yeah, you sound very Boston when you say that. That's really good. Um, Yes, but I don't sound like that now. I have this cultured accent that allows (laughs) me to pass. Um, Although when I, you know, I go to get my car fixed in Nashville and they look at me and say, where are you from? So I I try to adapt. So you have the Boston accent. You have the, you know, the educated, I'm a professor accent. Do you have a Tennessee accent that you can go to in dire situations? Only when necessary. Only when necessary. And this is not a necessity, so we won't, we won't force you down there. Um, you, you were on the podcast last time. The book was, uh, is it Jesus and the, the Short Stories? Short Stories by Jesus. There it is. I enjoyed that book. I really Thank did. You. It was fun to write, and it's a good read. It is. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's a good read, and it's good subject matter. And so it's been five or six years. Yeah, and, 2014. Wow. 2014, you're in the podcast. That's oh, when it was published, and a podcast was, I think, the right year. around then. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right around then. And so this time, you decided to get a tag team partner to write the book. You've worked with this gentleman before. He couldn't be there. He's in uh, he's in the Middle East, right? Is he? He's in right Jer- now in Jerusalem, and ideally, while we are taping, he is asleep because he needs his rest. Yeah, yeah, that's important. Uh, your publicist tried to get both of you on the call, and I was like, well, 
if, if he can make it. But uh, like I, I, I like just talking to you more than I like the idea of talking at two a.m. with all three of us. So, but I can describe him for you, and he may be the reason you're thinking of Duke because he actually holds a, a faculty chair in the Duke Department of Religious Studies. But he's in Jerusalem, and given COVID, he's not going anywhere. He's staying put. Wow. Um, because of issues of quarantine and he's got family there. So his name is Mark Brettler, Mark V. Brettler. Um, he was my co-editor for the Jewish Annotated New Testament. Mm-hmm. And we work extremely well together. We frequently finish each other's sentences, uh, but he's usually six to eight hours ahead of me. <laughs> so by the time he's figured out what's, what the problem is, you know, I'm, I'm asleep. It doesn't matter. He yeah. wakes up and fixes it. It's all good. Yeah. That that makes a lot of sense. And so the connection is you're a New Testament scholar, and he would be a scholar of the Jewish writings, which we'll talk about what term we use to describe what he is an expert of in a second. Um, So that is like the tag team effect you guys have of uh, both areas of specialties, and so it brings this book together perfectly. Well, it's, but it's a little bit more than that. When I was at Duke back, I believe before you were born, which is a frightening <laughs> thought, when Noah was still on the ark, <laughs> I, I came into the PhD program uh, and I, I, was, I had a very generous fellowship, but they also required me to do some teaching. And the dean of the divinity school at the time, this is a Methodist divinity school, would not allow me into the divinity school classes because I'm not a Christian. Mm-hmm. So this work comes down to the director of graduate studies. You can't teach in the divinity school in your program because you're not Christian. And I said, I think you ought to check with some of the faculty because I wasn't sure about them either. <laughs> Two graduate studies said, don't be fresh. You're going to go teach Old Testament. And I said, I don't do Old Testament. And he said, you do now. So since huh. Duke was giving me quite a generous fellowship to study, so my job was to be a student, I had a little bit more time for studying. So along with taking all the New Testament required courses, I either uh, took or audited all the Old Testament courses for the PhD because I figured if I had to teach the material, I really needed better than just a really strong undergraduate major to do it. And then two years later, after I did all those courses, the dean died, not my fault. And the next (laughs) semester, the new dean said, well, she's qualified. Of course, she can go teach New Testament. (laughs) So I actually kept up the expertise in both. And my first teaching job was at Swarthmore College, which is this fabulous liberal arts school um, outside of Philadelphia. Uh-huh. And I was, I was Bible lady. So first semester was the Old Testament Tanakh. Yeah. Bible. Second semester was New Testament. I did everything in Christianity up to Augustine. And then every, everything dealing with women, you know, like women in Buddhism, <laughs> women in Hinduism, women in Wicca, um, and everything dealing with Jews. Mm-hmm. How so, come, yeah, there's never, if you're, if you're a male faculty or uh, a male in that world, they never assign you like men in Buddhism, men in something, but as a woman, you just get uh, kind of lumped in there. That's how it works. Yeah, and I wanted the job and I wasn't going to argue. <laughs> this was the mid 80s and it's what you did. Wow. Wow, that's crazy. So I, I uh, Barbara Brown Taylor's been on the podcast and she talked about when she graduated from Yale, I think it was around that time. And she had, a, I think, an MDiv, and mm-hmm. the only employment she could find is as uh, a position that was referred to as a secretary back then. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the 80s, it, it's a different world in uh, the academic uh, environment. So uh, we're glad you got a job, though. We're glad it worked out and you stayed and you've been teaching for a few decades now. Yeah, well, my mother wanted me to be a lawyer so because she said, you've got a brain and a mouth, you might as well use them. Um, and and I, I said to her, look, if, if this Bible thing doesn't work, Right. If I can't get into a PhD program, if I can't get a job, if I can't get tenure, I promised her I'd go to law school. 
So that that's still a possibility. Still a possibility. Yeah. Weaning at this point, <laughs> I, the, the job thing seems to have worked pretty well. You know, it's funny is that for myself included, many preachers I know, like law was always the like the other option because it seems like there is some commonality. You have this, you know, there's a lot of arguing, there's public speaking, there's like a quote unquote sacred text that we're all dependent upon. Yeah, it makes sense. So maybe if this doesn't work out for you, and then I get fired from my job at some point, we go to law school together. It, it's a deal. Okay, deal. Okay, uh, so let's talk about the angle of the book, where we talk about the, the title. I'm sorry, I should have led with that. The Bible with and without Jesus. Side note, I recently was asked to do a wedding, and someone said, uh, yeah, do the wedding. I said, okay, I'd love to do it. Tell me about what you want. And they go, not too religious. And I go, okay, what does that sound like? And they go, well, I've heard you preach before, just like that. And I thought, I think you mean that as a compliment, but I hear that differently, and my friends will make fun of me for that. So it sounds kind of like this. It's the, the Bible with and without Jesus. And so part of like the angle that I find this to be unique is, a- as you just said, y- you are person who would not describe yourself as a Christian, but you're a New Testament scholar. And mm-hmm. so there's a, a different angle because I assume there's not too many people in your world that I know of who have uh, a, a similar uh, CV as you. <laughs> well, I probably know more about Jesus than the average Christian on the street. Um, but uh, I'd agree. I, the average Christian probably loves him more and certainly worships him. And I do not. So I, yeah. it, although I date him in a heartbeat, I date him. <laughs> Um, it, the, um, cause I like his mother. Oh. <laughs> I I you're... <laughs> she does um, seem great. She's, yeah, she's no, I, I find Jesus fascinating. So what, what we, I'm not the only one. Um, when Mark Brettler and I edited the Jewish annotated new Testament, we have, we had about 70 for the second, second, uh, edition, about 70 separate Jewish scholars contributing to that. So every single book in the new Testament annotated by Jews and then about 50 back essays on, you know, Mary in Jewish history, Jesus in Jewish history, Paul in Jewish history, um, uh, Judaism in the Second Temple period, and so on. So I, I'm by no means the only one. And, and I shouldn't be because Jesus is a really interesting figure. Mm-hmm. And the New Testament is a fascinating book. Plus, Jesus is Jewish, and much of the New Testament is Jewish. So why shouldn't Jews be interested in this as part of our history? Yeah, I've... I've uh... Yeah, so I'm not the only one. Um I may have been there more at the beginning than than some of my junior colleagues, but oh no, I I can't take credit for being the only one. Not so the only. What we want to do is stress that and the Bible with and without Jesus, because we want to affirm both readings. So what we did for this volume is we looked at the major places in the New Testament that cites, and then we have this problem: what to call that ancient text? Yes, the Hebrew Bible would be like I guess the default for for just practical purposes. Good. Um, when when the New Testament cites the Hebrew Bible, what did that Hebrew Bible text mean in its original context? So if Isaiah says, see a pregnant young lady over there, what were they thinking? If Isaiah says, uh, Here, here's the suffering individual who's in really, really bad shape, what were they thinking at the time? Uh, how else were those texts read at the same time that the Gospels are being written, that Jesus lived? You know, Did the Dead Sea Scrolls mention them? Does Philo, the Jewish philosopher, mention them? Does Josephus mention them? And then really looking closely at how those texts get deployed in rabbinic literature, post-biblical, post-New Testament, Jewish literature. And sometimes it's quite polemical because the, the rabbinic sources sometimes know what the Christians are saying. And they're going, oh, no, no, that can't possibly be true. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the rabbis are going off on their own, uh, their own insights, their own personal concerns. So the point is, is threefold. Well, it's actually more than that, but three to make it convenient. Plus, it sounds kind of Trinitarian. <laughs> 
Um, we're introducing Jews to texts that are in our canon, but we may not know because Christianity kind of got a hold of them. So if you look at the Jewish liturgy, the text that we would read in the synagogue, we'll never hear the suffering servant. He's just not there. So we wind up reintroducing part of our own scripture to our own people, because we all have, when we read Bible, we all have emphases, you know, here's the stuff we foreground and put in, as, as my colleague Mark would put it, we put it in a 60 point font. And here's mm-hmm. the stuff in 1.5 font, and you need special glasses to see it. Yeah. We're, we're showing Christians, here are other ways of reading the text, so that if you say Jesus fulfilled something, it doesn't mean you put like a, a check mark next to it in the pages of the Old Testament and said, you know, we you know, cross that one out because it's already taken care of. Mm-hmm. As scripture, it, it should have ongoing meaning. Um, we're making it clear to Jews that the Christian reading has a logic to it, so we can't say that's just nonsense. It's not nonsense. There's, there's a complete logic there. And then at the end of each chapter, we're saying, well, what can we do with this text today? Mm-hmm. If scripture has ongoing meaning, what else can this text mean? And what can it tell us today when we really need to look at the text with um, multicultural eyes and multi-religious eyes and see mm-hmm. what else it may have to tell us? Yeah. And it seems that in the dialogue that we have, uh, quote unquote, like across the aisle, we'll learn something because like, like you described, the idea of... Uh, the Jewish community missing the suffering servant text from Isaiah. There's, I mean, that's like four chapters or or more, uh, more. four different sections that they're just that the Jewish community is missing. Is it is it just that uh, I mean, overlooking? Is it? It's like it's it's minimized within like like you said. Uh, I, I might use the language of we all have a canon within a canon. Like right. we have these texts that we go to. You know, for me, it's you know Philippians two and the Sermon on the Mount, and you know obviously the Gospels. Like these are central. Um, but uh, others I just kind of like slip through. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Um, in the same way that if you, if you go to um, a, a mainline church on the lectionary on a Sunday morning, you're not going to hear the book of Numbers. Uh, and pretty much the only time you're going to hear the book of Esther cited is on Church Woman United Sunday when you get for such a time as this something something. But the rest <laughs> of the book is irrelevant. So, so we all have canons within canons and it's uh-huh. harder for Christians because Christians have a bigger Bible. Yeah. So the Christians are going to emphasize the prophets. The Jews are going to emphasize the Torah. Uh, so we'll look from, everybody gets Genesis, yeah. but Jews are going to spend a whole lot more time from say Exodus 15 up to the end of Deuteronomy than Christians are. Mm-hmm. Christians are going to spend a whole lot more time in Isaiah. Um, nobody's going to bother with the Chronicler. Yeah. yeah that's except on occasion, because you, you wouldn't. Um, so we miss certain parts because of liturgical readings. Yeah. Um, even in the church, by the way, if you're on the lectionary, there's certain passages you're never going to hear because the lectionary doesn't consider them to be important. Yeah. Or, you know, if, if you if you fall asleep one Sunday in year C, you're going to miss Mary and Martha. You know, it's so it, yeah. we're always trying to figure out what those emphases are. So we're introducing uh, Jews and Christians to our own canons, but in a different way. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I'm part of the Churches of Christ. And I know that you've taught at Otter Creek Church of Christ. Yeah. Uh, so you, you you get us, but we don't even do the lectionary. So it's really, we're all just making this up as we go every week. So there's definitely oh, things yeah, that we're missing. So much better than any synagogue I've ever been in. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with that. Yeah, we have that's, a question. That's obvious. The, the tie-in between our singing being better and the fact that our book is bigger than the Jewish book, does that mean yeah. that we're definitely right? No, because the Catholic Bible is larger than yours, and the Mormons have an uh, extra book too. So, if you want to go by size rather than quality, <laughs> but I, I what about like the singing? Doesn't that like balance it? Like, doesn't that like push us over the edge? It depends upon your taste. Okay, all right, fair enough, fair enough. Okay, so we, we have better arguments in our synagogue. 
I feel like if I make that joke, I, sh- I would be in trouble for saying that. What joke? I don't know, but that I'm not going to say. I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, but like you say in the book, the stereotype, I'm not going to go there. I, you're smarter than me. I'm not going to follow you. Um, like you say in the book, two Jews, three opinions is the proverb that we've all been taught. And uh, so, yeah, no, no argument here on that. Um, so the idea is that we have readings with Jesus as Christians. We read, yeah. we read the Hebrew scriptures a different way because of Jesus. We see that with our New Testament authors, that they are clearly reading things differently. Um, to, to stay with the suffering servant text, I, I think you know Peter is reading um, you know Isaiah 53 in a different way than Jewish people would probably read Isaiah 53. Is that fair to say? Oh, well, if you look at, at how Isaiah 53 gets deployed in 1 Peter, I think 1 Peter's reading Isaiah 53 in a way that no sane person would read it today. Yeah, First Peter contextualizes, and it's so apropos of what's happening today. First Peter uses the suffering servant to tell slaves to be obedient to their masters and to suffer as Jesus suffered. That's the context. Mm-hmm. And there's a political reason why that made sense at the time. But in light of chattel slavery today, in light of America's history with ongoing residue of slavery, oh my God, it's, it's, it's a text that... That, that gives it makes it hard for me to breathe when I read that text because I know how it was deployed over the centuries. And so, when, but that's not the only reading that the New Testament gives of Isaiah fifty three for Matthew. It's it's for healing. Yeah. He bore our diseases. It's because Jesus is a healer. Mm-hmm. Paul identifies with the suffering servant who's not listened to. Well, I get that. I mean, I get that in the classroom on occasion, um, or the suffering servant who will travel to give a word and he's on his way to Spain. So even the New Testament itself looks at the suffering servant in multiple ways, citing it seven times directly, but alluding to it all over the place. Yeah, and so it's using it in a way that would make uh, the original author a little bit squeamish and go, that's that's not exactly what I was saying, but the New Testament has experienced something in Jesus that changes the filter through which they see these Jewish texts. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. So if you read the text through Christian lenses, you should be able to see Jesus on every page from the beginning of creation to the end of Malachi, noting that the Jewish canon doesn't end with Malachi, it ends with Second Chronicles. So even our canonical order gets it gives yeah. us different readings because where you end makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so and what we need is for Jews to be able to see that. So when, when a Christian says, gee, I find Jesus in creation and, and I find the Trinity in Genesis chapter one and all that. And the Jew says, well, I don't see the word Jesus of Nazareth here, mm-hmm. right? To be able to explain here, here's what those reading strategies are so that the Christian reading makes sense. And if you look at Jewish history, in fact, Jews have engaged in suffering servant. He gets cited in the Talmud. He gets cited by Rashi, the the very famous medieval French Jewish commentator. And Jews have come up with 10 or 12 separate identifications for who the servant is, because as you pointed out, two Jews, three opinions. So why would we settle on just one person? Mm -hmm. But the dominant Jewish view of the suffering servant, when Jews actually think about him, and he shows up in more than just the end of Isaiah 52 and then chapter 53, Mm -hmm. is that the suffering servant is Israel. Because elsewhere, Isaiah says, Israel, my servant, Jacob, my servant. And the wounding of the servant is Israel's being taken into exile. And in, in effect, the resurrection of that servant, the, the bringing to life of that servant is the repatriation of the Jews in exile to the homeland. And, and how does that redeem? Because the Gentile nations see the power of Israel's God to take the suffering community and redeem it. And they say, wow, Israel's God, best on the block. They're probably right. 
mm-hmm. and that's their redemption. So when Jews be able, can see how the Christian story maps onto Isaiah, and when Christians can see how the Jewish story maps onto Isaiah, I, we can agree to disagree on this. The Christians can read one way, the Jews can read another way, but we can look over the aisle and say, I see where do you get it. Yeah. Where do you think original intent is in this conversation? Because there's a Christian reading, there's a Jewish reading, and then would it be fair to say that there is a third read, like the author's original intent as well? Um, and that's what we try to do. So we're looking at Isaiah in Isaiah's own context. This would be the so-called second Isaiah writing during the Babylonian exile. Which would be um, and then, chapters 40 through 55, roughly? Is that 41, well done. Yes, 40 through 55, A+. Church, plus. Church of Christ 50. in the house. Yeah. Um, and that's the, um, the Isaiah, the prophet of comfort, saying, telling the Jews in Babylon, your exile is coming to an end. You, you, have, you have paid for your sin. God has recognized your repentance. Um, as, as Isaiah 40 starts out, um, you know, a voice cries out, in the wilderness build a highway. Which is a good example of where the New Testament redeploys that, but just changes the punctuation to make that about John the Baptist in the wilderness yeah. crying out. Same verses, uh, same words should just change the comma quotation mark over three words. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what did Isaiah originally intend? That's really hard to say. Um, it's easier to try to determine what Isaiah's original audience would have gotten from it. Because we know something about the culture of the time. But trying to get into somebody's head is really, really hard. Um, We don't even know if we should read all those four, the so-called four servant psalms together. Isaiah never actually uses the word suffering servant. The term comes from a, um, I think it was Belgian biblical scholar named Bernard Doom, who said, no, there are four, not D-O-O-M, but D-U-H-M, who said that there are these four suffering servant psalms. And he said, therefore, we read them together. But that may not be the case. So for one, it might refer to Israel for another one. And here in particular, the end of 52 and the beginning and and the rest of 53, that really looks like he's Isaiah is referring to an actual individual Hmm. um, who epitomizes what disability looks like. The sort of person and this, again, is so contemporary. The person who was so disabled, you want to look away because you just don't want to have to deal with with this individual, you don't know what to say, you don't know what to do to help. And and you're cut by this, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, or what happened, or can no medical attention work? You're looking at this, this guy is just suffering. And in that individual suffering becomes the epitome of the suffering of the people. Hmm. And that would have worked to the audience in exile in Babylon. Yeah. And then to say to this person who, who, you know, who gives Job a run for his money, right? Yeah. And then to say at the end, he's not sinful. So you have to decouple the idea of, of physical disability and sin. It had already been decoupled with Job. It's already decoupled throughout the scriptures of Israel. But make sure you decouple that. Wow. Um, and then what help can you possibly provide? And what sympathy can you possibly muster? And it may well be for Isaiah the sense that this servant is suffering vicariously for the rest of Israel. Hmm. So you map out these three readings, or more than three, but let's just stick with the number three for good Trinitarian purposes. Um, if it works for you. <laughs> the three re- when When I was 
growing up, learning, going to seminary, for me, there was always the right answer, which is what the original author intended. And then I started to read the New Testament and realized, oh, wait a minute, the New Testament doesn't do that with the old uh, scriptures, the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures. And if that's the way they do that in the New Testament, what am I supposed to do? And all of a sudden, this, this concept of midrash became, okay, this is what even the New Testament writers are doing to some degree with the Jewish text. And all of a sudden, like the boundaries of like, there's one right answer are, are out the window. And so how do you understand when there's multiple readings, which one is the right reading, if all of a sudden the idea of a right and wrong reading uh, isn't front and center anymore? Right. Well, I, I don't think there's ever one right reading. Um, there might be one right reading for you when you're six years old, but if that's still the right reading when you're 60, something has gone dreadfully wrong and it hasn't gone wrong with the text. Hmm. Because we're always we're always providing... Uh, new questions to the text and we're always answering those questions with new answers. Mm -hmm. So the stuff that we looked at 50 years ago, some of that we still look at today. We're looking at at how, how do we understand those texts regarding slavery? That's, that's back on the table again. Um, How do we understand economics? What, what does the Bible say about politics, economics? Um, How do you love, how do you love your enemy? If your enemy is about to drop a bomb on you or you on them, so we're always asking new questions of the text. Um, it, it's a greater problem for Christians than it is with Jews. And there's actually a cultural reason for that. And this is something that Mark and I argue in, in the book. Um, it, Jews, if, if you think about religion, it's a very, very narrow definition as something that you get into by belief, detached from ethnicity, detached from your parents, detached from geography, uh, then Christianity invented religion. Because you weren't born a Christian, you got into the movement because uh, you had a conversion experience of some sort, mm-hmm. or because God appeared to you, or because you had a vision on the road to Damascus. I mean, something happened. So in Johannine language from the Gospel of John, you're born anew, uh, you're born from above, or if you must, you're born again. Okay. Thank you. Um, now, but see, if you get into a tradition by belief, then you have to control those beliefs, because if your belief gets off kilter, then you're outside the tradition. So the church really had to work hard to determine what is the true doctrine and what is not true doctrine. And that's why you start getting creeds. So you knew exactly what to proclaim and you knew what the boundaries were. And if you stepped over the boundary, you're a heretic. Mm -hmm. So the church is going to cut back on multiple interpretations. And that's why when you look at church history, you have, you know, Ignatius and Irenaeus and Tertullian and Augustine and Aquinas. You have all these individuals, mostly men. Jews never settled down just to be a religion because we're, we're, we're a people, right? Yeah. You know, if, if, if your parents are Jewish, you're Jewish. And today, if your mother's a Jew, you're a Jew, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can convert in, and then you're a Jew. But, but we're not held together by belief, which is why you can have atheist Jews. Atheist Christian is just oxymoronic. But, but atheist Jew, that's, that's fine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we can argue because at the end of the day, they can't throw us out of the system. In the same way that Americans can argue, but at the end of the day, they, they can't take away your citizenship, right? Yeah. As long as all you're doing is arguing, you're still in the system. Yeah. So Jews can come up with multiple right answers. And when you look at rabbinic literature, they're always saying, Devarachar, you know, give me another one. Tell me another. Hmm. So the rubric comes out, the Shiva Panim Torah. the Torah has 70 faces. And it's like a... Um, it's like a beautifully faceted jewel. And every time you turn it, it hits the light in a different way. Hmm. And that's the way we look at scripture, turn it and turn it and keep finding new insight into it. Because if it only means one thing, then God has nothing more to communicate. Hmm. 
and why would you bother? Or if it only means one thing, then Christians would be stuck playing first century Bible land um, rather than allow the spirit to continue to provide instruction on things like, oh, gee, I don't know, slavery and women's rights. Mm -hmm. Point of fact, some of us have tried to play first century you know, Christian make-believe land and try to replicate that. And uh, it doesn't always go well, uh, just in case you were wondering. It doesn't, doesn't always work out too well. No, and it's a bunch of people on the streets wearing bathrobes, and it just looks weird. Yeah, it does. And if you wear the bathrobes even inside with a bunch of people, it still feels uncomfortable for everyone there. I agree. Yeah. Um, so what I, I, what I hear you saying is, what I hear as you're saying that is Christianity has to re-identify its boundary markers, not by thinking the right things and having the right ideas, but some sort of deeper familial connection to each other. And maybe that's, you know, like baptism and being a part of the family instead of just saying all the right answers to Bible trivia. Well, that's exactly right. Take baptism more seriously. Baptism is indelible. I mean, it's not like circumcision where you can look down and half the population goes, oh, Jewish. Well, I mean, except now you can't tell. Um, but but baptism is equally indelible. Mm-hmm. So trust your community um, and see what it would mean to stay together, even if you have disagreements. And, and and one of the reasons you can do that is because you have four Gospels, which already says there are at least four perspectives on how one is going to understand Jesus of Nazareth. And then you throw in Hebrews, which gives us something you know, completely different. Yeah. Revelation, something even more different. Paul, you cited Philippians 2. That's, that's a great passage. I agree. It's a good but one. But that's not on the Mount either. Mm-hmm. So... What, what do you want to emphasize? Do you want to emphasize Christology? Do you want to emphasize salvation, soteriology? Do you want to emphasize ethics? Do you want to emphasize the church? Because to be a Christian, you have to have at least two. Yeah. Right? <laughs> two or three are gathered in my name. There I am. If you're by yourself, you're kind of on your own. Yeah. Um, so in order to make the system work, mm-hmm. it has to work in community. And that means you have to be in conversation with others. Mm, that's good. That's good. All right. Well, let's have. Can we have a conversation about creation now? Sure. Okay. I uh, I love that you uh, gave some uh, a few pages on creation because I think that's that's a big one. When you think about like what's the canon chapters on creation, I know that's you, you gave us yeah. some pages on it. And so when you think of like the Christian canon, I think Genesis top of the Hebrew scriptures for Christians. It's 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 at the top in my opinion. Well, it would have to be because Jesus fixes what Adam broke. So if, if you don't have Adam mucking stuff up, this is Romans 5, yeah. right? Through one man comes sin and death, and through another, and through Jesus comes the fix. Um, but Adam and Eve are not real important in Judaism. So after Genesis 5, they just kind of disappear. Yeah. Um, you get occasional references to the Garden of Eden, you know, location, location, location. But, but Adam and Eve are not a big deal, and Judaism doesn't talk about a fall. We don't have a sense of original sin. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about an evil inclination and a good inclination. When I was going to Catholic church when I was a kid, which is another story for another time, I remember one of these catechism books that we had. Um, they had the two little kids that looked like those little chubby kids that used to be the Campbell soup yeah, figures yeah, of course. before they went on a diet, um, and, and they were white and blonde. Um, and and that you had they had a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder, mm-hmm. and the devil's saying, skip school, break a window, and the angel is saying, pray the rosary. Um, so that's kind of how the Jews think about it. You've got this evil inclination mm-hmm. that, that moves you toward, it's not like the devil, but it moves you towards selfishness, and you've got the good inclination. So the idea is you, you use Torah to harness the evil inclination. Mm-hmm. And Torah teaches you how to keep your selfishness in check and how to be more generous and more compassionate mm-hmm. to others. 
So we don't have a sense of fall. We don't have a sense of original sin. We generally, I mean, it, the, the Hebrew Bible does talk about, you know, we're all conceived in sin. So you've got that sin stuff there, but it's a very, very minor voice. Um, Jews will sometimes look at the whole Garden of Eden thing, not as, as, as the original sin, but the original opportunity. Hmm. Like, now you're out in the world, go make something of it. Go, go do some good stuff. Um, so how do, how do we, we read these various traditions? How do we understand when God says, let us make humankind, who's the us? Mm-hmm. Um, when the, at the very beginning, I mean, just looking at the first couple of, of words, um, and the, this something of God hovered over the face of the deep. Mm-hmm. Is it the spirit of God or is it, um, t- to use the more crass expression, a mighty wind? Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about the stars of Schitt's Creek, that's a somewhat esoteric reference, but some of your, your listeners will get this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so probably originally it was a mighty wind because that's what Ruach means. It's a strong wind blowing over the ocean. Yeah. But because the word in both Hebrew and Greek Ruach in Greek, panoima, ruach in Hebrew, panoima in Greek can mean wind, it can mean breath, and it can mean spirit. Mm-hmm. Later on, when you start getting references to the spirit of God, it makes perfectly good sense to read the Holy Spirit back into this, this awesome wind or this mighty wind. Mm-hmm. So we're always going to read this stuff through later lenses. So, you know, how do the rabbis read Adam and Eve? How do the rabbis read the creation narrative? Mm-hmm. Um, how does the church read Adam and Eve? How does the church read the creation narrative? Yeah. And very, and then another, another angle you talk about in the book is the comparison of Genesis 1, the first creation story, in comparison to the Babylonian, the Babylonian creation story, the Enuma Elish. Am I saying it correctly? Okay. Where, say it again? The Enuma Elish. Yeah, sounds better when you say it. But the way that they're different stories and it seems like there's also an angle of going, if this is the Jewish people telling a story and, you know, maybe you date that sixth century, which that's the, the new document hypothesis that, will, that, that you go with, uh, as many do, um, like you just go, well, the Jews are saying this story in response to the story that's all around them that everyone else is saying. And so that gives a yeah. whole new angle to the story as well. Oh, storytellers crib from everybody. So do composers, mm-hmm. right? Oh, this looks like a good riff. You know, Beethoven taught me how to go from here to here. I can plug that one in. And if I only do two notes, it's not plagiarizing. Um, so, oh, yeah. I mean, we're always borrowing motifs from other people. Yeah. Um, and Jews and Christians continue to borrow motifs from other people. So um, if you look at Matthew, Matthew chapter one, Matthew says uh, in the genealogy, right? And, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was the Christ. And, and you're going... Oh, you have a guy named Jacob who has a son named Joseph. Been there, done that. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to read the rest of the chapter to know that Joseph's son of Jacob, the second one, is going to dream dreams and go to Egypt. Yeah. So Matthew's crib in the plot line from the end of Genesis. And then so Jesus goes to Egypt. He comes out of Egypt. He crosses water in a life-changing experience. He goes out into the wilderness for a multiple of 40 where he's tempted. And then he goes up on a mountain and gives a law. Matthew's running the plot line to Exodus. Yeah. So everybody's borrowing stories. And then you can go to later Jewish literature. This is wonderful midrash, great midrash, this Jewish story that you were talking about before, um, where at the time that Abraham is born. So, I mean, this is clearly midrashic because when we meet Abraham in Genesis, he's already a senior citizen. So at the time that Abraham is born, um, the, these wise uh, people, I think sages, uh, go up to the king at the time, whose name is Nimrod. Nimrod is the default king for the ancient Near East. And they, and they say to Nimrod, at this hour, at this time, to Terah, who's Abraham's dad, uh, will be born a son um, 
uh, through whom his descendants will inherit the world or something like that. So with your permission, let silver and gold be given to the dead on the condition that the child is killed. Um, At this time, a giant star appears in the sky and eats a bunch of other stars. Mm. So what is this? It's Jews knowing about the star of Bethlehem and saying, you know what? You got the star of Bethlehem. We had one. Ours was earlier. Ours was bigger and badder and better. Mm. And you've got the gift of the Magi. Well, we got silver and gold, too. And you've got this kid who's about to be killed by Herod the Great. Well, Abraham was about to be killed by Nimrod. You're doing nothing new. We did that, you know, 1800 years before Mm -hmm. you. So it's stories being told over stories, being told over stories. And they're pulling some of that star stuff from pagan mythology. Mm. For some Christians, they hear that and they go, well, but ours is right. And ours is the true one. And we hear that. And you're trying to say that our story isn't right. And all of a sudden, we become very defensive. And Oh, I, we can do it both. And I don't think religion is a zero-sum game. Tell me more about that. Um, I, whenever I write, um, and, and remember, my primary job is to train people who want to be Christian ministers how to proclaim the New Testament, which is a weird job for a Jew. Um, I'm never going to interfere with um, Christian theology. The Trinity stays in place. Christology stays in place. Fully God, fully human. All that stuff stays in place. I'm interested in trying to get a sense of how that got in place in the first place. Like, what were people thinking at the time, and how does it all fit? And why did it make sense at Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea? And why did it make sense uh, in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, and so on? Um, It's also to allow people to recognize if they read generously, and you can actually see this in the documents of Vatican II, and I know you're not Roman Catholic, I know you're Church of Christ, and that's not quite the same thing. No, not the same. Um, That uh, the word of God is also inchoate in other people's religious traditions. And the New Testament already tells you that. So if you look, for example, at Paul's Areopagus speech, this is Mars Hill, because mm-hmm. every, every every single city of a certain size has to have a Baptist church called Mars Hill Baptist Church. But this is the Areopagus mm-hmm. speech. It's just Mars Hill sounds better. It does. Um, uh, where he says, you know, you've got this altar to this unknown God. You're, you're kind of halfway there anyway. Mm-hmm. It's already in your system. Uh, Paul in Romans 1 talks about how creation and conscience let you know that, that there's this singular God. Like everybody's got a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. So it strikes me that it would be appropriate and generous on the part of a Christian to say, I'm right, but you may well be on your way. It sounds a little bit patronizing, but for the the person who wants to say, I'm right and you're wrong, why not just say, I'm right, and I can see hints of my own tradition in yours? Which, like you're saying, like that is in the Christian tradition. The Christian tradition has this sort of uh, set of eyes that allows them to see what God is doing elsewhere. It's more than that. religion, and I've talked about this with other people, but I think I'm pretty sure this is right. Um, Religion is not based in logic. So when I go out and I hang out with my Church of Christ friends, they're like, well, if if you put, if, if you, if you lined everything up, then you would see that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And they're very, very logical about it. And they, they can proof text you till the proverbial cows come home, right? Or till COVID ends, right? Because they have all the, the, the details. Um, But that's making belief sort of like Sudoku. It's making belief a matter of logic, okay. right? Um, and if you could just crack the code, everybody would get the same answer. Ah, yeah, yeah. Because right? it's the same. Yeah. And belief is not like Sudoku because belief is not based on logic. Belief is based is belief is like love, and love is not logical. Paul is eminently logical and really, really well trained, 
And the only way he gets with the program is because he has a vision on the road to Damascus. Mm. Uh, the followers of Jesus, Clopas and, and whoever that other person is, I, I'd like to think it's a woman, but so the two on the road to Damascus, Clopas and maybe Mrs. Clopas. Sounds right. Right. Um, the, you know, they, they know the tradition. And Jesus shows up, and this is actually, a, it's a pagan motif, gods in disguise, because you have that with Greek mythology all over the yeah, place. Yeah, Dionysius right? does that. Um, and they don't recognize him, and he gives them a biblical seminar for six miles, and they still don't get it. Mm-hmm. And the only time they, that when they finally get it is in that Eucharistic moment when they break bread and suddenly, bingo, that's their heart talking. That's not their head talking. Mm. So how do you get into the system? You get into the system the way you get into love. You can't argue somebody into love. Right? Um, so uh, when I was a child, and I, I won't tell you to whom this was, because some people will, will recall this particular singer. Um, I, I wrote a fan letter to a singer explaining why the singer should be in love with me. It was about like 1965 or so. And I made what I thought was a compelling <laughs> argument, you know. I'm learning how to play the piano. I do very well in school. I really like your haircut and your accent. It's probably a dead giveaway. Um, uh, and, you know, people tell me that my mother tells me I'm pretty. I think I put that <laughs> <laughs> I'm seven years old. You should love me. It didn't work. Wow. And I thought I had made a compelling argument. I got an eight by 10 glossy, which was good. But, yeah, you know, fair. it didn't work. Mm. You fall in love because your heart tells you that something is true. You believe in the Christ, you believe in God, because your heart tells you that's true. Academics can come in and then enhance that belief, just like marriage counseling can come in and enhance a relationship. That's so good. Um, yeah. You say you love Jesus. I can tell you how he's so fabulous in my eyes. He will, If you see him through my eyes, he'll look even more fabulous to you. Yeah. That's where the academics comes in. But you can't, you can't prove something is right. It's only right if you believe that it's right. Mm-hmm. But that's not a matter of proof. Do you think we're trying to prove because it uh, it deals with the own, our own things that we're most afraid of, like that we we don't have it all figured out, that we that we ourselves, the ones that we're trying to convince you, maybe that we're actually trying to convince ourselves, and for any any space that we give you to question, it's more space than we can deal with on our own. Yeah. Well, that would be my psychoanalyzing you and suggesting there's a problem with your own faith, and I don't want to do that. Well, I'm going to do that about my um, own people then. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't want to do it about another group of people. Yeah. Um, it, it, there's another way of looking at it. I mean, that is it possible? Mm-hmm. Sure. But there's another way of looking at it. You are absolutely convinced this is true, and you are concerned about my immortal soul, and you actually like me. Oh, I like that reading. Yeah. So, it behooves you to proclaim the gospel to me in the way that you would think would be most effective mm-hmm. um, so that I too can be saved and so that I too can, can find the love of Christ that, that is so important to you and you want to share yeah. it. So I don't think some of this concern is coming from defensiveness or a worry that, gee, gee I need to argue it more strongly because I got this nagging doubt in the back of my mind. Um, it may actually be because you actually care about other people. Mm. And I'd prefer to think that than prefer to think that there's a problem with the individual's faith. And at the same time, because I don't want to judge people negatively. And at the same time, um, the New Testament allows for doubt. Doubt and faith are not mutually exclusive. Um, At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in the the, the scene that leads up to the Great Commission, or the 28, 16, 17, somewhere around there, um, it says the 11 disciples saw him and some doubted. 
So they're actually staring at the resurrected Christ. They knew he was dead. They saw it, right? Um, they doubt, but they're still hanging in there with the program. That's fine. Jesus has doubts. That's the whole Gethsemane thing. I don't want to die. That's yeah, good. That's okay. I want to pretend like what I said was actually what you said, because I like your answer a whole lot better than mine. That was good. I like the virtuous. Yeah, that, that's that's more charitable. Um, how do you... How can we have a virtuous reading of other people while still holding to conviction of, I, I think Jesus is Lord. I, I want you to experience him, but I'm also going to be charitable and graceful to you, even if that's not the conclusion you're getting to. Sure. And I think that's exactly the right stance to take. You do not sacrifice the particulars of your own tradition on the altar of interfaith sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Right. Because then we get this kind of watered down, oh, holy power, something, something. And that's not satisfying to anybody. Yeah. So if I go into a church, I'm in churches a lot. Well, now I'm not because I'm just stuck at home because of COVID, yeah. right? But if, if this were normal, um, I'd be in churches pretty much every Sunday and every Wednesday night doing scholar and residence programs or adult Bible study or mm-hmm. kind of writing children's books now, you know, like children children's hours, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Easier with children because they ask really good questions and you, you don't have to give them exams later. Um, it, if I'm in a church, I want to hear Christ proclaimed and I want to hear him proclaimed loudly and proudly and vociferously. So I don't like wishy-washy Christians. I, I want Christians to have high Christology because it's much easier to deal with that way. Um, so how do you proclaim the Christ to me? You do not tell me what's wrong with my tradition. You tell me what's right That's with good. yours. And you do it on a personal level. So you don't proof text. Because you know, I can just come back with you and say, well, I read Isaiah this way. Stalemate. We're not going to get anywhere. But you can say, here's, what, here's how the Christ is manifest in my life. Here's how I became a believer. Or if you've always been one, here's when I first realized yeah. that this is what Christ does, or this is what the Spirit does for me, if you're more on the Pentecostal side of things. Um, here's how my church works. Here, here's what we claim to believe. Um, and that requires you actually to know what it is you believe, and not all people do. They just kind of take it for granted. But if somebody on the outside says, well, what exactly do you mean by fully God and fully man? Mm-hmm. You know, how does that work? Um, or if you to proclaim that Christ died, that, that Jesus died for you um, to give you a reset to take your sins, um, which you which for which you could not possibly atone because humanity's sins were too heavy, and bore those sins on the cross and, and in effect gave you a reset, re- refilled up all those um, all those treasure boxes up in heaven. Mm-hmm. Right? How does that work? You need to know how that works. But when my children were little, um, we used Vanderbilt Divinity students as babysitters because we figured if something really went wrong, we'd flunk the students. So they they had a particular reason for taking care of our children. Smart. And they had two favorite babysitters who were both doing their uh, field ed work, their internship at West End United Methodist Church, which is this beautiful, fabulous church right near the Vanderbilt campus uh, in Midtown Nashville. Um, and when they could not babysit because they were doing room at the inn or uh, distributing blankets uh, to people on the streets or they're doing um, mission trips somewhere, my kids would say they can't babysit because they're busy being Christian <laughs> and never corrected them because we thought what a great definition of what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I like that. Never corrected them. Hmm. That's really good. That's smart. I love that. And so if uh, if those 
MIT students would finally solve COVID and you're back in church. And that's a call back to the beginning of the podcast right there for our listeners who've gotten this far. You're going to open up and you're going to share some of this new book, which comes out uh, this week, The Bible With and Without Jesus. And you're going to encourage yep. this dialogue where we can learn to listen to each other and to see the readings from across the aisle as a way for us to grow and to strengthen our own understanding of our sacred texts, right? Right. And at the same time, recognize that there has been polemic on both sides. So the reception history, think about somebody like Justin Martyr, who has you know terrible things to say about his, his buddy Trifo. Well, they, they kind of make up at the end and say, gee, I'd love to, you know, let's go to lunch later. Um, but to recognize the polemic on the Jewish side, because Jews have said nasty things about Christian interpretation and Christians have said nasty things about Jewish interpretation. Mm-hmm. So that we don't have to start with this kind of perpetrator victim model. Everybody has a little bit of both mm-hmm. and say, maybe we can get around the, I'm right and you're wrong, but I'm right when I read through my lenses and you're right when you read through your lenses. And what happens if we try to look through each other's lenses, slightly distorting to be sure, Mm -hmm. but try to get a sense of somebody else's perspective, which in our own culture, where we just listen to people who agree with us in these infinite echo chambers, Uh, to use your language, what happens if we look over the aisle and we actually start talking with each other in a civil manner And instead of saying you're wrong, instead say, how did you get there? What's the logic that led you to that particular place? Why do you see it this way rather than that way? How do you understand these words? And that's not a bad thing to do. No, that's not bad at all. Well, there's one bad thing that you could do, and that is wait another six years to publish a book to give us an excuse to have you back on the podcast. So can I had a book on Sermon on the Mount that came out in August. You could talk with me about that. You have that. another one that came out like three months ago? How come yeah. I didn't get a copy of it? Okay, we need to solve this. So, okay, well, now it's on me. I appreciate you uh, letting me know that. Send me your mailing address and I will get you okay, a copy. Okay, well, we'll make that happen uh, off air. But uh, AJ, it is an absolute pleasure to talk with you again. Congrats on the new book and the previous book as well. And uh, best of luck. Enjoying COVID, sitting yeah. at home in uh, Nashville. Talk with you. I mean, it has been a long time, but always enjoyable. What a treat for me! Thank you so very much. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>